haven't taught writing yeah in about six years but I'm, I'm gonna be teaching again just at a little company here uh it is the i had it explained to me as the the local equivalent of the place that all of the horrible people in bad art friend worked at so i look forward to having my incriminating emails leaked to the new york times any day now the it's a, it's a little uh, company they uh, two you know two women run it uh, we had a, a nice brunch with them and uh, joanna and i were both going to be teaching this little school they they offer classes in uh, poetry fiction and nonfiction, uh, and they've you know they made a nice little living for themselves because they they get a lot of students these, these are you know grown-up students with jobs <laughs> choosing freely of their own will to take a, a class for a few sessions in some particular arena of creative writing or another as i said they they, they offer classes in you know really i mean they, they're willing to offer creative writing classes and in, in any kind of creative creative writing people would like to learn and you know in the same way that if you go to you know, like a local art center you can take drawing classes or something like this but so i i feel you know i have misgivings about teaching creative writing not because writers are born not made and you can't teach writing though i think there's probably some truth to that and and not even because the you know creative writing workshops have have spoiled the the boldness and uh, experimentation of uh, american fiction and poetry but really just because i always feel a little bit like i'm lying to my students not in the things i say but sort of in the premise of the class as a whole which I, I always have sort of a hard time articulating even to myself so this feels a little bit better because i'm just going to be teaching grown-ups who come want to come in and, and try something out for a little bit the thing i i'm <laughs> the thing that sort of uh, uh took me back a little bit you know I, I i i write and publish and have taught fiction and poetry both and so i you know i'm, I'm happy to teach both as the the owners of the company mentioned at our brunch there's a limited demand for poetry <laughs> this is a, you know it's a highly educated area with a lot of people who have some uh free time and expendable income and want to improve themselves so this is this is exactly the sort of area area you would want to start up a school like this in. but as they said there's limited demand for poetry now now it turns out what that means is that the demand for poetry is zero there, there is zero demand for poetry classes <laughs> no people want to take poetry classes now there's a certain you know the people who sign up for the school are are people you know people who sign up for classes at this company they're either people who are not interested in getting mfas or, or are not interested in getting them yet people who, who have a little money to spend though they do have some scholarship programs and they're people who want to want to write in in one capacity or another so it's not that nobody's interested in writing a lot of people are interested in writing fiction and and once upon a time i might have said that you know well that's the sounder financial choice but you know these days fiction poetry financially it's it's pretty much a wash so what i conclude is that while there are lots of people there are plenty of people in the area who say to themselves you know i'd like to write a novel or i'd like to write short stories and 
I, I, I think I could benefit from some guidance, some, you know, the, the uh, wisdom of experience, the little bit of, you know, some pointers, some workshopping, some instruction from those who have, uh, uh, who, who have a background in this, from those who published, from those who've spent years thinking about and working on this. Plenty of people are saying that to themselves about fiction. The people who, the, the equivalent people who are not signing up for the poetry classes. I mean, truly, there, there are none. The, the total number is zero. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I, I have, I glean that what they're saying to themselves is, is one of three things, I, I think. They're either saying, I love poetry, but for me, it's mostly about, you know, self-reflection and, and, you know, journaling and sort of it's a therapeutic process. I'm really just interested in, in sort of, you know, writing for myself. Uh, so, so that's one, one possibility. I think there are plenty of people for whom that's true. Another possibility is uh, poetry is bullshit. <laughs> it's not, it's not, even, even if, and even though I'm interested in writing, uh, why would I ever waste my time on, on that kind of feet, embarrassing, self-indulgent, uh, hogwash. The third thing that some of those people who are not signing up for the non-existent poetry classes, the third thing they're, they're thinking is I, I, I do care about poetry and I do want to write poetry. And I even want to write poetry for other people. But having read what I've read, having looked out of the world, I, I conclude that with no particular instruction, no guidance, no pointers, no tips, <laughs> no drills, no exercises, with no help and no teaching whatsoever, I am already fully confidently capable of producing poems every bit as good as the poems that are published every week in, say, The New Yorker or any other of the highest profile poetry venues in the country. I can do that just as well as all of the people writing and publishing in those venues without any help at all. And I guess... From where I'm sitting, getting ready to teach my first uh, fiction-only class <laughs> in January, I guess what I have to say, you know, if, if any of you are listening, you, if you live in the area, if you if you would have been one of those people who'd, who might sign up for a poetry class, but you said to yourself, either I, I write for myself and that's all I need, or uh, poetry is bullshit and not worth my time, or uh, I can already do poetry just as well as all of you motherfuckers. Whatever you're saying to yourself, I just want to reassure you that you are absolutely, without question, 100% correct. I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Ricketts, 
thank you all for listening. And uh, if you have a chance sometime this week, recommend the show to somebody you think might enjoy it. I, I appreciate it. Uh, your friend will appreciate it. And with any luck, the the show will keep trickling out into the world, uh, spreading the uh, its its venomous message of poetry skepticism far and wide. This week, I have a little bit of a miscellany. I'm going to be reading from an especially salty listener <laughs> email that I got recently, as well as uh, talking for a while, I think, about the health of poetry. Poetry World Checkup. And then I'm going to read you a poem because I haven't done that in a while. And for reasons I will get into, it's something I want to do at least semi-regularly. I don't want to let it fall off altogether. First, though, I, I just wanted to say a very nerdy word or two about the Chess World Championship which is happening right now in Dubai. We're three games into a 14-game match between the current world champion, Magnus Carlsen, and this round's challenger. It's the first challenger that... Uh, it's, first, it's the first world championship that they have had in three years because of the pandemic. They don't have one every year, but they, they had to delay it an extra year. The last one was in 2018 against Fabiano Caruana, the current challenger is Jan Nepomniachtchi. Uh, and right now the record is uh, three draws. <laughs> draw, draw, and draw. So it's one and a half to one and a half. First man to seven and a half wins. Uh, and then there's some complicated uh, there's some, some there's some complicated procedures that will go into effect if they if they draw if they have uh, if if the record is drawn at seven to seven, which seems kind of likely given that the last world championship was a six to six classical game draw that was finally decided in some rapid and blitz games. Uh, but, you know it's 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 cool to watch. I don't I'm not so. Uh, I don't have so much free time, nor do I have the attention span required simply to sit and watch it like a spectator sport. But I follow it and uh, go through the go through the games afterward. It is a um, it's a strange game, and it's a strange game at this moment because it is a little bit. Well, it's not. I wouldn't. Call, I wouldn't say that chess is in decline i mean if anything it's 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 enormously popular at the moment but it is in a kind of an odd it has had a, a sort of an odd crisis so in 1996 uh, ibm had devised a machine called deep blue a supercomputer and it uh, it, it pitted Deep Blue against Garry Kasparov, the then world champion, and some, you know, some would say, you know, arguably one of the the very greatest players ever to play the game. Uh, Deep Blue lost, but then the next year in a rematch, Deep Blue won, and for the first time, there was a real question of whether this was something machines could do better than humans. Uh, Kasparov protested that, that in the second game there was a, a specific move that he thought was too too human a move. And he he claimed for for some years that you know it had been it had been selected presumably by one of his you know grandmaster rivals behind the scenes and that, that Deep Blue was a kind of a 
a uh, mechanical Turk or a fraud. But, you know, in the years that followed, it's it, the, the question became really obsolete. I mean, at this point, with Stockfish and AlphaZero most recently, there are chess engines that are I mean, capable of just crushing and devastating even Deep Blue. And so there's, there's really no contest anymore between humans and machines. There are intuitions that human players are still able to have from time to time that, that machines are not able to are not able to predict accepted extreme depths and sometimes you know not even then at least as 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 far as what's possible now i mean chess is such a you know it's 64 squares and 32 pieces but even four moves into the game there's something like three billion possible positions so you know the 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 computing power required just to play a decent game is pretty astonishing uh but you know what part of what's happened is that it has become a kind of a cyborg game. So you know Magnus Carlsen and Jan Pamnici are both obviously extraordinarily talented and disciplined players. But you know quite openly, both of them in their preparations for this match spent a great deal of time running simulations through various extremely high-level chess engines. There was a move in today's match that uh, Carlson made. It was a, a very subtle counterintuitive bishop move. He just moved his bishop back one one square to the eighth rank. He was playing black. And what uh, Caruana, who's one of the commentators, said was that it was he he made that choice so quickly, and it was so counterintuitive a move. But it proved very soon to be exactly the right move. That Caruana said, you know, however good uh, Carlson is, and Carlson is specifically, in addition to all of his other strengths, is pretty universally praised as being the best of all intuitive players. But Caruana said, you know, he thinks it's extremely likely that, he's th he thinks it's quite likely that this was a move that uh, Carlson had learned from a computer. That, that he had run this line of a game specifically through a an engine at some point in his its deep and long preparation and remembered it and so he didn't have to calculate he just had to remember it and you know uh there were a few novelties and a few errors uh inaccuracies in the first two games but this game was was sort of uh the, today's game was was pretty pretty widely considered to be the most boring of the three so far. It was it was, it was extremely accurate, as several commentators noticed. That it was it was played about as well as a computer would play it, and when that happens on both sides, the result tends to be a draw. You know, Nepomnichi, who who had his, had white for the second time, white is 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 uh, does have a the white pieces have a small advantage. A small but you know significant advantage, and he was asked if he was frustrated by by having drawn you know both of his first two games with the white pieces, and his response was, well, you know, the in order for there to be a different result, that is, in order for somebody to win and somebody to lose, usually somebody has to make a mistake, and neither of them made a mistake today. So, you know, the the some people have joked. That at some point, you know, the perfect chess engine. If you were to pitch, if you were to pit the perfect chess engine against itself, then 
the result would either always be a draw or whichever side played with the white pieces would win because of that, that tiny advantage. And we may be approaching that stage of the game with human players. Human players, you know, a combination of a, a you know advanced theory on the game and and the you know the aid of uh, computer engines might be such that you know unless there is a real uh, a real anomalous human error, unless you know, I think, I think maybe the two possibilities that seem to suggest themselves is that at the very, very highest level, and most, you know, most games between the very highest level grandmasters are, are draws. But at the very highest level, it seems like there's sort of, a, there, there are a couple of possibilities. One is that human games will, will begin increasingly to resemble computer games. And another, which may end up being the same result anyway, is, is that the game will become more like poker. That is, uh, if nobody makes a mistake, then the only way to make, I mean, that is the, the best way to make, the best way to make your opponent make a mistake might be to make him think that you're making one, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, a good player will play differently depending on who, whom he's playing. And uh, it seems, it seems at any rate, like a strange moment in chess. But I, I like chess. I'm, I'm a terrible player absolutely just wretched player but I, I enjoy it as a as a uh, as a spectator I guess as a fan for a few reasons partly because it is so different than poetry right it is meritocratic it is widely admired right you know it, it, chess is nerdy and people make fun of it but uh, nobody thinks he can play chess who can't right or or not for long anyway <laughs> Um, and it, it, it's directly competitive in a way. You know, the, these are these are things that are all quite different from uh, poetry. You know, in my I used to teach English at a ballet school, and one of the things that this always sort of startled me was that all of the kids in in the whole school, really, not just in any given class, but in the whole school, they all knew without question who was the best and who was the second best and who was the third best. It was almost quantitative, and there really was very little jealousy because it was just all so clear. And chess has something like that. Obviously, there are people who have an advantage from birth in one way or another, but there's not a lot of ambiguity about who's good. At least, again, it is not hard to put that ambiguity to the test. I also like chess, though, I think because it, it does bear some important resemblance to poetry. That is, it is profoundly and inescapably elusive it, it is one cannot play a chess game at any level without literally quoting thousands of chess games that have come before many of which have names right the first game uh in the the first game of this uh, world championship match was played uh, as a uh, Catalan game, a Spanish game, which was converted to, or sorry, it was, the, it was a martial attack, which was converted to a, a Catalan game. So same with the third game. The second game was a Rui Lopez opening, one of the oldest and most deeply analyzed of openings. So uh, this is, by the way, the wonderful thing about chess theory is that it is the almost perfect opposite of literary theory. That is, whereas literary theory 
is a bunch of abstract ideas that have almost nothing to do with, with anything that exists in the world. Chess theory really almost literally just means uh, chess history. So theory is, is purely a record of moves, possible moves, and ultimate consequences of these moves. That's what's meant when one says theory. And theory is clearest and densest uh, at the beginning and the end of the game, when there are fewer variables available. In the middle of the game, uh, that's the dark woods. And that is, as Carlson has said, the most interesting part. That is the part that feels most like chess. It's also the part where his intuition probably serves him best. Another, you know, a couple other, you know, quick similarities to poetry. The game responds to even small novelties. That, that's what, it, you know, that's what it's called when you, when you make a new move. And when you see the new move that grandmasters and chess experts get excited about, often it is so piddling, so tiny, some little single square pawn move. It just seems like, well, there's almost nothing there. But again, when you play the game at the very highest level, then, then the smallest of changes has enormous consequences. I was reminded of this the other week uh, listening to that, that Zoom reading I mentioned in my conversation with Sam Riviere. That it was an old professor of mine, a really wonderful um, poet. I'm actually, with luck, going to be having her on the show soon, which should be really, really cool. It's going to be a really, that I'm that's that's an interview I'm really excited about. I think it's going to be a really good one. Uh, but, you know, she's a, she is a, a formalist. You know, I don't think anybody really likes that term, except for Shane McRae. <laughs> but she, you know, she writes almost exclusively in, in regular meter and rhyme. And she made a comment or two during the reading about how in this newest book she had made, she had allowed herself to take certain liberties with rhyme. Uh, <laughs> the liberties with rhyme, as it turned out, were that she she did not forbid herself from rhyming additionally in the middle of the line, right? She didn't, she didn't forbid herself from using uh, semi, from using irregular, but perhaps insistent uh, internal rhyme <laughs> on top of everything else she was doing. So uh, I, you know, I, I am not a writer quite at her level, but I certainly understand the impulse to be be sort of scandalized by even the smallest of variations, right? I'm, I'm still sort of, you know, I get the breath knocked out of me by the end of, uh, of Byron's uh, We'll Go No More Roving. Very short poem, very simple. Here, I'll read it to you real quick just because he does this remarkable thing, really just startling thing that, that is also really uh, tiny and piddling and, and insignificant, um, except Except that when you play at the highest level, these little changes make a difference. So this is, we'll go, so we'll go no more roving by uh, Lord Byron. So we'll go no more roving so late into the night, though the heart be still as loving and the moon be still as bright. For the sword out wears its sheath and the soul wears out the breast and the heart must pause to breathe and love itself have rest. Though the night was made for loving and the day returns too soon, yet we'll go no more roving by the light of the moon. So it's a it's a, you know simple construction. It's A B A B, uh, you know three quatrains. There's trimeter, sort of you know in, uh, s s 
most, you know, fairly consistent. It's a fairly consistent anapestic trimeter. But in the last line in this poem about losing your breath, about getting old, about falling behind, about no longer being able to keep up, and finally about coming to a stop. In the very last line of this poem about being worn out and not being able to go on, he drops a foot from the last line. Though the night was made for loving, da-da-da, da-da, da-da, and the day returns too soon, da-da-da, da-da, da-da, yet will go no more roving, da-da-da, da-da, da-da, by the light of the moon. That's all. He stops short at the end. Scandalous. Just thrilling to me. I, I, I blush like I'm seeing, uh, you know, the, the hem of a lady's petticoat at the opera. But... Uh, I, you know, I think I think this is this this is the same with chess. It's part of what I really enjoy about it, as little as I'm able to understand. And you know, lastly, I think that there are when there are truly great games, they are as with the best poems, they are called immortal, and they have even with great players, they have a, a kind of a. Jarellian struck by lightning serendipity to them. They happen suddenly, quickly, and, and many of the most celebrated games are not official games. The opera game, the uh, what is I think usually referred to as the immortal game, uh, Andreasen's game, uh, those were, if I recall, both played uh, not as part of official comp- competitions, but as little little throwaways little time passers, just something, just for fun. Uh, But they are remembered, recorded, passed along with reverence uh, for the, you know, as the pieces of art that they, that they are. So enough that there will be lots more, probably very dry uh, and drawn chess to come. But uh, I just wanted to say a word about that. I don't have sports. I just have this. I am, by the way, and this I really should not say. (laughs) But really, maybe I'll cut this. But I'm not, you know, there is a skeletal Slee Ricketts Twitter account where where literally I I just post links to the episodes and sometimes I'll post a heads up if I'm going to be talking about a movie or something to give you a chance to, to watch it ahead of time. Otherwise, I don't I don't do anything either. I don't I don't like things. I don't follow anything. I don't comment not because I don't, you know, love and find interesting plenty of, of people who, who I'm sure say lots of wonderful things on there, but because I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to get drawn in. You know, I, I would rather, I have better ways to waste my time, mostly uh, on the one social media site I do actually spend time on every day, way too much time every day. Uh, it is the only one where you will find me uh, at, at all other than those weekly episode links. And that is chess.com. <laughs> I should say is not a sponsor of the show though. You know, Hey, uh, I, it's, it's what I would consider. I w- I'll say this. I would consider chess.com as a sponsor of this show about a thousand times quicker than I would consider the fucking poetry foundation. So there, there's that. But at any rate, I, I am on there as, just as Slee Ricketts. I am, uh, as I said, very, very bad, but I do play a lot of very bad games. If you are already on there and you have not seen me, it is probably because my rating is so low that I would never 
across your radar. And if you were to play me, then even drawing a game with me would, would no doubt have a catastrophic effect on your rating. Uh, anyway, enough chess. On to a really memorable uh, email I got. <laughs> this was a, a few weeks ago. I, I had a conversation with Alice in which I mentioned that on the Apple algorithm, there were, uh, there were, there were some interesting shows that, that popped up as recommendations if you listened to Alice's podcast, Poetry Says, as well as if you listened to Sleeve Rickets. We had two in common apart from each other. I guess we don't have each other in common. So we had, we had two in common. One was uh, an innocuous Australian books podcast, and another was Red Scare, <laughs> which I'm not going to try to characterize because it, it's going to be characterized because it's characterized uh, much more tartly in this email. Uh, but I I mentioned this on the show and sort of was was uh, amused by it because it is not uh, the show I would think of as being as being akin to this one, though all are welcome here. I got this note from BH. I did ask, uh, and and BH said I could read this. <laughs> ah, subject Red Scare. I got this through my, my website. Sorry I contributed to Red Scare being on your podcast's recommendations. You might be interested to know there is a decent-sized contingent of accomplished poets and then in parentheses, sassy gays, BPD ladies, and religious closet cases like myself. <laughs> I, I think BPD I take to be a, a borderline personality disorder. I, I think there's a there's a, a there's a decent sized contingent of accomplished poets, sassy gays, BPD ladies, and religious closet cases like myself that enjoy both the rambling gossip of two middle middle aged anorexics who say uh, a an ironically offensive word that I won't say even on this podcast, and hot to end, hot takes about poetry from a middle-aged shit talker who is not quite as successful as he thinks he should be. The best part of the pod is when you dump on people like Kava Akbar, Ben Lerner, and Ocean Wong. Even though I disagree with your takes, it's so fun to listen to something besides the Poetry Foundation's somnolescent genuflections towards seemingly every poet in existence. P.S. If come town comes up, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Sorry. P.S. If Come Town, and that is C U M, if Come Town comes up on the recommendations next, you know who to blame. <laughs> I do, I have heard of uh, Come Town. Uh, and I welcome I welcome you all, Red Scare listeners, Come Town listeners. Uh I there, there were first thank you. It's just that was a great that was a great note. Uh, <laughs> uh second I, I, there, I guess there, there, there are a few points I, I want to make in, in response. One is that I grew up as a Southern Catholic theater kid. So I have long considered sassy gays, BPD ladies, and religious classic cases to be my natural allies. And, and I still do. You are, you are definitely all more than welcome uh, <laughs> this ridiculous podcast. Uh, uh, second, I was really glad to hear that this was someone who often disagreed with my takes. I, I want people to disagree. The last thing I want is, uh, is just to talk to people who already agree with me. Good Lord. Whether that's, you know, among guests or listeners, I'm, I'm very heartened to hear that people who disagree with me are willing to listen and, and with luck, they will write in and let me know. And maybe sometimes appear on the show and argue with me. All of that is is definitely welcome. 
Uh, and the, the last last thing I wanted to say uh, in in response to to BH's very generous, evocative <laughs> email uh, is that while I am I am um, pleased to dump on Kava Akbar, Ben Lerner, and Ocean Vuong, all of whom fucking deserve it. Uh, I don't want to. And I certainly talk shit. I mean, that's no, that's without without question. I talk a lot of shit and I will talk more in this episode, I'm sure. But I, I don't want to do that exclusively. I did, I've, I've threatened for a while to do a, a proper William Logan episode and I haven't done it mostly because I've, I felt as if I should do more research. So I've been reading his reviews in the new Criterion and, and sometimes elsewhere for years. He publishes two big omnibuses a year in the new Criterion in which he infamously uh, takes on and mostly takes down uh, various popular poetry books of the day. He also writes, uh, you know, more straightforward criticism and some other reflections and a, a really brutal assault on uh, a a a specific case of plagiarism that I do want to get into. So I, I'm going to be talking about a couple of specific pieces he wrote in some episodes to come, but I, I guess I'll just say now what I have been holding off from saying because I, I felt as if I was not quite yet grounded enough in his work. And I, the thing is, I probably never will be. William Logan certainly knows a lot more than I do and is certainly much more accomplished than I am. Here's the thing that I have always feared with William Logan. And, and by fear, I mean, I feared, I feared it for myself. That is, he is a poet and a critic. And though lots of people read his criticism, even if they say they don't, any, anyone who complains about him, any, I'll move it this way, anyone who brings him up as a topic to complain about is also reading his, his reviews. They are, uh, they are sharp and they are uh, perceptive and they are extremely mean-spirited and sometimes really, really beyond the pale. Uh, and I think often wrong. Um, I do think that he is a little wittier than Jonathan gives him credit for, though he is at his worst and I think this has happened more and more in recent years. He's at his worst when he's indulging in mean guy one-liners, uh, of which he's occasionally, you know, uh, dashed off some some good ones. The thing about William Logan that I cringe at mostly because he also he he seldom he seldom attacks people who are not already very well established. He's not hurting anybody's career is my, 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 uh, uh, is what, what I glean. If he, if he reviews first books, he almost only reviews first books that he, that he thinks are really worth the reader's time. Uh, so, you know, th there, I think, I think his policy is exactly correct. The thing about him though, though, and this is really my, my kind of my, armchair theory about him is that if you spend this much time, if you spend this much time milking your ducts for bile about poetry, it's going to be hard to write poetry. And that's what you see when you read his poetry. It's that it sucks. His poetry is very weak. It's often, I mean, the thing is, it, it doesn't even suck in an interesting way. It's, it's just tepid. It tends to be just tepid, sepia-toned description. 
in, in, in you know free verse but but sort of uh, limping flat roughly pentameter length lines that resolve with a, a moment of musing or a a highly specific but ultimately inconsequential image. Now, that's not true of all of his poems. But going back through his poetry, and I haven't read enough, I'm sure somebody who knows his poetry much better than I do could say much more about it, but my impression is that it's gotten worse. People complain a lot about the MFA sucking the the, the venom and the, the, the heat and the force, the, the excitement out of uh, poetry. I, I wonder if his criticism, did, if he did that to himself with his own criticism because it's gotten lamer. So I, I don't want to attack William Logan at any great length. As I, as I said, I, uh, I respect him a, a great deal. And, and I'm saying this, you know, again, without having spent nearly enough time with his work. I, 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 if, if there is, by the way, if there is a specific work of his that I should know that, that contradicts everything I'm saying here, let me know. Write me a note. Fill me in. I, 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 I am far from a William Logan expert. That's just my kind of working theory, is that if you spend that much time just laying into other people's poetry, then it gets hard to write your own without a kind of a, a reflexive cringe, if that makes sense. And I don't want to do that. I do still write poems. And I would like to be able to, to write things other than just uh, mean takedowns. Though uh, those I am also happy to supply as needed. So that was my... <laughs> that was one of the more uh, salient emails I have received thus far. Uh, I, wanted, I wanted to talk also about something that came up in my conversation with Sam the other week. So I, I said this offhand. I said, you know, poetry is in a, is in a state of poor health. And he, he challenged that claim and, and he referred to, as, as he, he was quite right to, the, the very large numbers of people uh, reading and writing poetry today. Uh, and even the increased uh, percentages, I think, in, in, by certain accounts of people reading poetry. And so uh, it, is, it is possible that I was completely wrong. But, you know, after, after that, when I was editing the episode, I, I, I heard myself say that and I thought, well, I didn't, I didn't plan on saying that. Where did that come from? Why did I... Because the way it felt to me at the, in the moment is it felt like a given. It felt like, well, of course, naturally, <laughs> we're talking about a dying art form. And, and he, Sam, contested that claim. And so it made me think about, well, why did I, why did I think that? Right? Why? Because it, it intuitively felt true. And it still intuitively feels true. And so, you know, the first thing I did, and it's something, it's one of my um, impulses, generally speaking, is, is I, I asked myself, well, so why would I do, why, why, why might this feel intuitively true despite not being true, right? Let, let's assume for a moment that I'm wrong. Well, why might it feel true? And I, I thought of two pretty good reasons it might feel true. One, obviously, is uh, what's sometimes called presentism, 
right? A, di a distorted vision of uh, history that that uh, privileges the present excessively. So, uh, you know, we don't know what the poetry of the future is. That's a blank for us. The poetry of the past, and especially the poetry of the distant past, is made up mostly of uh, a, a small number of fossil survivors. And while there are many great works that have doubtless been lost for reasons that are utterly chaotic, right? They're, 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 we, we know that Sophocles wrote some 70 plays and we have seven of them. So, you know, chances are at least some of the other 63 were pretty fucking good. He was Sophocles after all, but we don't have them. And, and the reason that we don't have them is almost certainly not because they were all bad, right? It is probably because of some dumb luck here or there, right? Something caught fire, somebody lost something, somebody got robbed, uh, a, a city was sacked, right? We know that there are plenty of works of literature that get lost to the ages uh, for by no fault of their own. But, but what's also true is that the ones that do survive tend to survive because, not just because they were lucky, right? First, they have to be lucky, right? That's a prerequisite. But then once they're lucky, somebody has to like them, right? The, the, the only copy of Catullus' uh, book of poems survived because it was stopping a, a barrel in the Middle Ages, or in the, the Dark Ages. But once somebody pulled it out of the barrel, right? Once you pull the scraps of the, you know, papyrus from the, the dump, uh, you know, in, outside of some ancient city in Egypt, you don't bother to pass it along unless you find something there, right? Or it doesn't go beyond the circle of scholars unless, it, unless you find something there. And, you know, so I think, I'm not saying that all, all, all old literature is great, but I am saying that it was selected by somebody. And, and it was selected by somebody again and again and again and again and again. Which means that even though there's a lot of old literature that I don't like, the older it is, the, the, the further back you go, the less likely it is that just some shit has stuck around. Because if it's just some shit that nobody cared about, then nobody bothered to copy it. Nobody bothered to pass it along. It has to be chosen actively by somebody. So the result is that when we look at the future of poetry, we see nothing. When we look at the past of poetry, we see you know, pretty, a pretty winnowed selection, a pretty trim selection of not necessarily the best, right? Sometimes the best was lost but not the dross, right? Not just the scraps, not just the average. We, we get things that somebody, generation after generation after generation, actively chose. In some cases, chose to copy out by hand in order to preserve. So we, we have, you know, the, the, the poetry of the past is uh, formidable, is impressive, is notable, memorable, is something. The poetry of the future is a blank to us, and the poetry of the present is a big fucking tidal wave of mostly garbage. Right? We're not getting the, you know, the the 
the very best selections from the, the papyrus garbage heap. We're just getting the whole garbage heap, toilet paper and all. And so it makes perfect sense that we might look at, you know, the art of the present and say, well, this is mostly trash. And, uh, and so there's something wrong with the present. So, so that's, that's, an, that's an understandable, I think, distortion. That's, that's probably pretty unavoidable unless we, we really try to keep, you know, remain conscious of it. Another uh, explanation for, for why one might think that poetry is in a state of poor health, while, you know, whether or not it is, uh, is, is uh, related to BH's email. That is sour grapes, right? If one writes poetry and one is not as successful as one would like to be, then it's pretty natural that one might say, well, you know, if, if, if I'm not appreciated, then, then, then maybe it's not that my work just isn't that remarkable. Maybe instead it's that we're not recognizing the truly remarkable work of our time. You know, that, that's a, I think that's an understandable impulse. And so, you know, I try to remind myself that both of these are, are, are totally likely explanations for why I, I felt intuitively before I even said it that, yeah, poetry is in a state of poor health. So I, I, then having, you know, having allowed for that, I've tried to, I've tried to think through some of what, some of what might be meant by that. And so I, I thought first I would make some distinctions, right? I talked with Jonathan about, you know, the varieties of poetry and definitions of poetry. And I, I don't want to get myself into more trouble, but uh, now well, I don't want to get myself into more of that kind of trouble. I've already gotten myself into plenty of other trouble. Uh, the, but the, um, there are some types of poetry that are healthy, right? Pop songs, those are, those are related to poetry. That's in the poetry family tree. Those are doing pretty well. Uh, rap, and I include rap among pop songs, you know, or vice versa at this point. Um, uh, spoken word, slam, some 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 health and some vitality there. Uh, insta poetry. I think, by the way, the 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 designation insta poetry is misleading, again because um, it, it's not. It's it, it is it is not. I, I I don't think that insta poetry really accurately reflects what's happening with with insta poetry. Right, insta poetry being Instagram poetry, and Instagram is a social media site that is uh, that, that centers on images. So anytime you have an Insta poem, what you really have is you have an image that contains a poem. And very often uh, it contains a poem uh, juxtaposed with a photograph or some illustration, or it's, it's spread out on the, the screen in some particular pleasing way. And uh, you know, my guess is that the people who do that very well, or rather the people who do that with great effect the people who put out Insta poems that lots of people respond to, uh, my guess is that they're not done that quickly. My guess is that they are they are composed pretty carefully, or at least according to some pretty demanding guidelines, uh, even if they're just intuitive guidelines, because they are effective. And I, I don't think that necessarily means that they're well-written. <laughs> I certainly don't think that. But there are enough other elements, visual elements involved, and pers you know, personality elements, persona elements involved, that I, I think that it is unfair to suggest that it's done quickly or carelessly. My guess is that as with, 
I mean, I think, I think probably the better term for it would be something like influencer poetry, though that's shaggier than Insta poetry. So I should take my own advice and not try to tell people what to call things. Um, even viral Twitter poems for the reasons that, that I talked about with Jonathan, uh, they, they are, all of these are doing pretty well, but what they all have in common as species of poetry is that they are all accompanied robustly by other elements. Music, atmosphere, persona, imagery. They, they are not naked, right? Performance, presence. And, and I don't, um, again, I, I don't mean to diminish any of these other things. In fact, I want to give these other elements full credit. Right? The thing about these forms of poetry that are all thriving in, in, you know, to, to one degree or another uh, is is that they 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 do require a great deal of skill, talent, effort, care, discipline, practice, luck. You know, in some cases, the luck of being beautiful to begin with. You know, with, with influencer poetry or insta poetry, that's often a, a significant factor. But as with you know, as as one used to say in the old days about about a certain gentleman's magazine. People aren't reading it for the articles, right? Which is not to say that the poetry is not at all significant, um, but it's uh, because that also wasn't true of Playboy, right? Playboy actually published um, really excellent, really top shelf fiction for for a long time, uh, among other, and, and occasionally very good interviews. I I, uh, I have heard. <laughs> My uh, exposure to Playboy is 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 uh, limited. Um, yeah, I won't, get, I, won't get, I won't get into that. That is a a a long and uh, underwhelming story. To, to to you know to return briefly to this to my conversation with Jonathan, there is at least hypothetically a, a type of poetry that aims to be accompanied as little as possible by other things. That is, you know, there were there were our uh, playwrights talk about making a script actor proof, which is to say that it's a script that communicates its power even if it's performed poorly. And you know, I think that is there is a kind of poetry that aims to do something like that, right? To be more or less reader proof. Um, obviously, that's not ever entirely possible just as it's not entirely possible with plays. But there is a kind of poetry that aims to communicate what it's communicating sheerly through the words themselves. Uh, whether that's ever successful or not is another question. But that kind of poetry, the kind of poetry that is not robustly accompanied by images, sounds, music, a performance, a presence, a Twitter or Instagram persona. That kind of poetry, naked poetry, mirror poetry, what the Australians, I guess, call page poetry, just the words on the page, to the extent to which that's possible. That kind of poetry, I think, is in rather poor health. I, I think that it may be true that even for that kind of poetry, though though I, I think if you if you were to to you know to make some of these distinctions, some of the uh, very sunny statistics that get uh, rattled off anytime somebody wants to um, write a piece about how poetry is thriving or poetry is 
entering a new golden age, as the new the recent CNN article had it. I think the statistics that get rattled off, I, I, my guess is that they would look rather different if you were to, to slice it a little more finely. Uh, and if the audience for this, even this kind of poetry is bigger, and my guess is that the audience is bigger for the same reasons that, uh, the, you know, community theaters prefer to put on shows with large casts. Why do community theaters, that is non-professional theaters, theaters that, are, that exist mostly for the enrichment of the participants, why do community theaters like to do shows with large casts? Well, for two reasons. One, because they get to involve more people. Um, and, and for two, indirectly, because all of those people know people. And so the bigger the cast, the more likely the house will be full because the house will be filled up almost exclusively by close personal friends and family members of the cast and crew. I, I tend to think that if the audience for poetry has increased, it has increased for that reason. Now, there are you know, sourpuss articles that come out from time to time about how poetry is dead or dying, and these are invariably annoying as shit. Um, I think the most recent one was Mark Edmondson's some years ago in The Atlantic. I'm sorry, not The Atlantic. I think it was in Harper's. Um, and people hated that fucking article. He was right about plenty of things, but what, where he was wrong and where, where most of these articles go wrong is again in the prescription. <laughs> His conclusion was that the reason poetry is in poor health is that uh, po poets aren't writing political enough poems. There's no... We just had, if we just had more political poetry, then poetry would be doing great, which just seems like a fucking idiotic thing to say uh, and, and, and looks even dumber now. <laughs> um, so I don't, I don't uh, intend to offer a prescription. I, I don't even really think that it makes a lot of sense to say that there is a, um, that there is a theoretical prescription. I, I not only will I not tell you what we should do to make poetry thrive, I'm not sure there's anything we could do to make it thrive. Um, I, you know, when I when I think about the health of poetry, here's some things I think about. I think about where are the guilty poetry pleasures? Right. Think of any any thriving art form. There are, there are uh, what uh, William Goldman liked to call the snob hit. There are works that, that everybody knows they're supposed to like, and maybe some people do. And then there are other pieces that you think, oh, but this is delicious. This I, this I want to gobble right up, um, even though I'm a little, I feel a little bad about it. Even though it's a little, I know it's sort of lowbrow, but I just love it. Where are those? Out of curiosity, where are the poetry guilty pleasures? Again, for this specific category of poetry, of unaccompanied poetry. Shouldn't there be guilty pleasures if this is a thriving art form? Where where are the heated arguments about whether one poem... Well, here, here's, the, here's an argument I would love to hear. I would love to hear a heated argument about who is putting out the best poetry today? But those arguments are easily found for any 
medium or art form that is actually in good health? Who's the best director? Who's the best pop star? Who's the best rapper alive? Right? Those, those you, you can you know throw a rock and you'll hit somebody having one of those arguments. Who argues genuinely about who's the best poet alive? Now, there are fandoms. There are, you know, as Jonathan pointed out, plenty of likes and retweets and uh, fire emojis. And there may even be people who, 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 you know, like to say insistently that so-and-so is the best. But where are the nitty-gritty arguments about this? You know, the, the, I, I tried to think of like the last few times I could, I, there was, a, there was a, a, a heated public debate about a specific poem. I could think of, let me think. Yeah, I can only think of really four instances in recent memory in which poems themselves came up for a really heated debate. Oh, actually maybe five, all right. So maybe a year or two after 9-11, Amiri Baraka published a poem in which he somewhat obliquely seemed to blame the Jews for 9-11. And people, you know, understandably got, got pretty upset about that. Uh, there was the case of um, Michael Dickman's extremely long poem in poetry that got Don Cher fired because it included a depiction of a, an old and explicitly racist white woman uh, using racial slurs. Uh, that was, by the way, a case of, if you, if you ever needed an, an instance of somebody getting what he deserved, but not because he deserved it, that was Don Cher losing his editorship of poetry, right? I mean, the man was a terrible editor. <laughs> he was a terrible editor. But uh, he didn't deserve to lose his editorship for that particular bad choice. He, he lost his editorship basically because he didn't read the room to use the you know the parlance of the day. He was too you know out to lunch to notice that maybe it wouldn't be a great idea to fill up a whole fucking issue with a you know very middling poem from an already uh, over celebrated uh, you know middle aged white poet uh, you know which included a racial slur. I mean like th that was. That was that was not a wise decision, but you know that's not he he deserved to lose his editorship a long time before that. Um, what's the, the other example I, was, I could think of? The um, Anders Carlson Wee had his article had his little poem in the Nation that shut down the Nation's poetry. Right? Was it in the Nation or Boston Review? I forget whichever one it was. Uh, after that, he no longer like they no they stopped publishing poems for like a good while. And uh, in, in, had a crisis of conscience. He had a little poem, again, very middling poem, uh, from another, you know, overpraised, you know, uh, early middle aged white poet, um, in which he seemed to sort of ventriloquize uh, a probably not white uh, homeless person. And again, it was fine. It was a fine poem, not great, not terrible, but. Uh, people were infuriated by what they called a sort of uh, verbal blackface. And then uh, there was the, I can't remember. Oh, you know what? There were a couple more. All right. So there was the guy um, in poetry who was a convicted pedophile who published a poem in their issue devoted to convicted felons. <laughs> and they just neglected to 
uh, to, to check to see if any of the convicted felons were convicted for uh, possession of enormous quantities of child pornography. Uh, boy, yeah. I think Reginald Dwayne Betts had the smartest word on that, which was, you know, uh, if you were actually doing this because you cared about giving an audience to the, the you know, to incarcerated poets, then yeah, you, you were right not to ask it about what everybody did. But that isn't really what you cared about, so go fuck yourself. Um, I, I, I paraphrase, but Reginald Dwayne Betts was, was, I think, quite on point about that. And then the other instance I could think of was uh, the the poem Sherman Alexie picked, the now also canceled Sherman Alexie picked for his uh, relatively recent issue of the Best American Poetry in which uh, he, he selected a, again, totally unremarkable poem, totally not, not extraordinary poem uh, by another middle-aged white guy, but who listed his name, the pseudonym, uh, he listed as his name a, a maybe, fe I think, ambiguously female uh, Chinese name or name of, of East Asian descent. Uh, and to to Alexei's credit, he'd bad, he, had, he had bad taste in poetry for picking that poem at all. But to his credit, he claimed to like it both before and after he learned that the, the author was really a white dude. Um, but again, in all of those cases... The argument about the work, the argument about the poem was about either the political or inadvertently political content of the poem or the identity of the author. It is, it is actually pretty hard to find much especially vigorous debate about whether, forget, forget arguments about who's the best poet alive, it's hard to find arguments about whether a poem is good or bad. Again, I've, I've, I've said this, I think, before, but if you really want to make people uncomfortable at, the, at your next faculty party, ask them whether the next invited poet who's coming to read is good or not. It is, it is scandalous. It is not acceptable. And if it were a thriving art form, it would go without saying. It would be the most obvious thing in the world to talk about. It would be something people talked about all the fucking time. And the third thing I, uh, I, I guess I thought about was, you know, where is the source, right? If poetry is in really good health, then what is the good shit people are dying to get their hands on? Where is the, the periodical or the press or the author who, whose next output, whose next work, whose next publication everyone's dying for? Maybe not you know, lining up outside the Barnes & Noble at midnight the night before, but what is anybody really eager to read. Again, there are plenty of social media posts that say things like, can't wait till this gets here, blah, blah, blah. Again, look for them when they're not tagged. Where is the, where is the actual urgency to get the plug, the juice, the source, the good stuff? I just don't see it.
so you know f finally not to complain too long but uh so so i don't want to offer a prescription i don't think there really is a prescription to offer but uh i i do I do take a little bit of exception to the insistent sunny claim that poetry is in good health. It does. I think it actually does matter that people say that. And I, th I think it's, it's not a good thing. Um, I think if you, I think if you piss on my leg and you tell me it's raining, that's a really good way to give people the impression that rain smells like piss. Right, so my, my daughter, uh, she just turned four, and she's my younger daughter, and she she loved her fourth birthday. It was great. Presents, cake, balloons, visitors. It was, it was uh, you know, thrilling top to bottom. <laughs> she couldn't believe it. Now, the, the only problem was that she doesn't really remember her third birthday, definitely doesn't remember any birthdays before that, and once she had a birthday, she thought, well, this is pretty good. I think I think I like birthdays. And then very soon after, as in like within a week, she was quite ready for another birthday. And so she would say things like, uh, is it my five birthday? She didn't say fifth. She'd say five. Is it my five birthday? Or, or someone she would jump ahead. Is it my eight birthday? Is it my eight birthday? I want it to be my eight birthday. I think I think that the 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 Mark Edmondson articles of the world, the poetry is dying and it's your fault because you wrote the wrong kind of poetry articles. I think those are are sort of like my four year old saying, uh, I, I, "It's not my eight birthday, but I wish it were. I want my I want this to be my five birthday. I wish this were my five birthday." I think that's sort of what it's saying. And, and and even even going so far as to say like, well, if if only you did something different, because she'll she'll then yell at us when we tell her it's not her five birthday. <laughs> you know, well, why not? What are you doing wrong? Why aren't you making it be my five birthday? I think that's sort of what the Mark Edmondson articles say. Is like you if you were doing your job right, it would be my five birthday. And that's part of what makes them so fucking insufferable. Uh, I think that um the people who insist that poetry is in good health are actually doing something worse. I think they're saying, uh, it is my five birthday. This is my five birthday. Now, now, now what I would say is this is not our five birthday. Uh, this is fucking pudding day at the nursing home, right? This is like, this is, this is the day we're moving into uh, hospice care, right? This is the end of the line. And there are no five birthdays in sight. And what people who insist that poetry is in good health are doing is they're saying, uh, putting day at the nursing home is my five birthday and isn't it wonderful? And how dare you suggest that it's not? And that's just fucking miserable for everyone. It's a terrible example. It's a terrible, it's, a, it's not true. It's not really convincing. Uh, but it is it is um, a, a, a tremendous distortion uh, um, that I, I, I can't imagine is doing anybody any good, particularly young people who are trying to get their bearings. Um, now, again, I, I don't especially think that young people should be going into poetry. I think the only reason I'm going into it, uh, going into it, the only reason I continue to read it and write it is that I can't fucking help myself. That's the only reason worth doing it at all. But I'm reminded of this, this moment in 
this movie. I don't think I've talked about this on the podcast, but I, I apologize, by the way, if I ever repeat myself here because I have so many fucking conversations and I have had so many conversations about poetry, uh, some of which occur on mic, some of which don't, most of which for decades and decades did not. And I can't always remember when I've talked about what with whom. But I don't think I've yet brought up on this podcast the movie, the 2002 Campbell Scott, Jesse Eisenberg movie, Roger Dodger. Uh, I don't imagine it's aged well. Definitely made very pre-Me Too. <laughs> but I am I actually, I'm going to be having a, a semi-Me Too themed episode coming up with Alice. So maybe I'll make her watch that movie too. <laughs> Just so she can, she can yell at me about it. But it, it is a very, I'll say, in college, I remembered it as being extremely uh, witty and sharp and, and super uh, misogynistic. But very well done. It was Jesse Eisenberg's debut. And um, uh, he's very good in it, as is Campbell Scott. But it's a movie in which a, a an awkward teenage nephew sneaks into New York City to uh, to learn how to pick up women, to learn you know, womanizing tips from his alcoholic, chain-smoking, womanizing uncle, the ad exec, uh, played by Campbell Scott. And it's it is uh, it's, it just crackles the dialogue again to my to my slightly inebriated college self at least it was very entertaining, but there is a moment in which they're out on the street and Campbell Scott is is showing Jesse Eisenberg these tips for checking out women for for looking at looking at women without drawing attention to yourself without seeming to check out women quietly covertly, subtly checking out the women around you. And Jesse Eisenberg, in a moment of frustration, says, what are you doing? I, 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 don't, I didn't come here because I want you to show me how to check out women. I already know how to check out women. I came here because I wanted you to teach me how to get with women, how to pick them up. And... Campbell Scott's response, very simply, is if you can't see how the two things are related, then there's nothing I can do for you. And I guess that's sort of how I feel about the it's my five birthday, that's not piss on your leg, it's rain, poetry's in good health argument. Is if you think this is good health, if you think this is what a thriving art form looks like, then there's nothing I can do for you. One of the reasons I like doing a podcast like this is that I get to change my mind from week to week and even sometimes between segments. So having recorded and edited the, the previous segment, I I don't know. I'm not sure what I think now, but we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, at the moment, though, it's it's very late. I'm very tired and... Uh, I have more editing to do tomorrow. So I'm going to just read a very, very short poem. Really, it's just a, a, a kind of um, an epigram. This is by Kevin Young. It's from Jelly Roll. It's a big whopping book of lots of teeny tiny poems. It's called Interlude. Um, m many of the poems in the book are named after types of music, pieces of music, styles of music. And this is a little, a little song between the songs. And uh, there's, there's almost nothing to it. It's almost not a poem at all. Uh, it just sort of, it has, I think, maybe just enough of a turn to it to be something 
It's like uh, it's like one of those paper sculptures that's folded just so, just enough that it's it's able to stand up on its own without falling over. So this is Interlude by Kevin Young. I'll just say a word or two about it and then sign off. Interlude. I know now who I am writing this to. And it ain't you. Afraid it's me I cannot leave alone well enough. A sparrow striking again again his own reflection. A simple sort of broken off love song, love poem, an abortive love poem. <laughs> it's a it's a book filled with love poems, uh, and and sad, you know, and, and post love poems and and uh, missing love poems. And this is a kind of a an apology, an acknowledgement that something else is going on. Young plays a lot with, uh, you know, line breaks. He, he tends to write in very short lines, especially in this book, and uh, likes to, he will often dismantle received phrases or expressions here. Just a, a, a small play with leaving uh, well enough alone, you know, not bothering with something that doesn't need bothering with. He, he turns that enough, he turns that just a little around so that it is himself he cannot leave alone well enough. He can't leave himself alone. He can't be alone. Uh, not well enough. And then that last little the little image, a sparrow striking again, line break, again, his own reflection. When I read it on the page without, without saying the words aloud, I, I often miss that second again after the line break. There's a... An, um, kind of an optical illusion or, or pseudo-illusion Paris in the spring that involves a similar line break and a similar repetition. It's easy to miss because it's kind of redundant and uh, we've, you know, you, you're, you're, you're reading for the sense and so you skip right over it, but there is a, there's a, a refracted quality to it. There's a little, there's a little reflection in the middle. And on one side of the reflection, the line break and the repetition, on one side is the word a sparrow striking, and on the other side is his own reflection. So there's, you know, the whole little pair of lines, a sparrow striking again, line break again, his own reflection, kind of enacts, it's, uh, enacts what it describes. That, that image, I should say, is, is um, I mean, it's a, a familiar image. I, I Just with my daughter the other day picking up her up from school, we found a little hummingbird dead, beside a big plate glass window. And I had to explain to her why that had happened. What, what had, you know, presumably the hummingbird had flown into the window thinking it was the sky. It was a new concept to her, but it, it's, it's a, it's a very old concept. It's a very old image in poetry. Uh, Catullus wrote a few times about his lover, Lesbia's pet sparrow. And he sometimes compared it to himself or contrasted it to himself. He, he sort of, he wished that he could play and, and hop about Lesbia's body with the freedom that the sparrow had. And he also mourns its loss and offers to comfort her. So it's a, it's a, as I said, it's a simple poem. It turns on this claim that he's, he's not actually addressing the person he says he's been addressing all this while. Um, and we see the sparrow, of course, you know, 
chasing after what it might think is a mate and what is really itself, as he says he's doing. But, you know, we also know uh, from experience and from reading other poems that it's, it's hard to, it's hard to protest too explicitly without raising suspicions. And so even when he's acknowledging that all of this is written to himself, he's still addressing this other you and maybe wishing that it were uh, to her that you were writing and not just to himself, which is to say he is writing to her. So I'll just read one more time, Interlude by Kevin Young. I know now who I am writing this to, and it ain't you. Afraid it's me, I cannot leave alone well enough. A sparrow striking again, again his own reflection. It's sort of a nice touch. He, uh, Young uses rhyme a lot, often it's internal rhyme, though his, his lines tend to be so short that there isn't that much room for, for internal rhyme. But he rhymes A-A-A-B-B, or, or sort of assonant, assonant rhyme, me and leave. But then he drops it all together with that dash after alone well enough. And the sounds of the last part of the poem are a lot harsher and less harmonious than those of the first part. And then as the title suggests... He goes right back to to what he was doing before and and writes uh, many more love poems. It's a momentary acknowledgement, but it's not it's not the end of the illusion. I'm gonna. I think I'm, I've been thinking a lot about lies, and uh, you know, especially lies one tells oneself. I think I think I'm gonna do an episode about lies coming up. I have a few things I want to talk about, but. For now, uh, thank you all for listening. I know this is something of a, 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 a cranky episode, so forgive me. I hope it was somewhat entertaining for you. And um, you can reach me as always at sleericketts at gmail.com. Please do write me, uh, especially if you disagree, especially if you, you think you found a good counterexample, if you think you can show that I was wrong about something. I would love to uh, hear what you have to say. And with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then.